Before we start, we want to tell you about two unmissable online events coming up. First, there's our first ever event for magazine subscribers. On the 24th of September, we're discussing all things coronavirus with an event hosted by the editor of New Scientist, Emily Wilson. Reporting a pandemic looks at the challenges of covering a fast-moving story or what we still don't know about the coronavirus and what lies ahead for us all. And on the 8th of October, we have an event open to everyone where we're tackling quantum computing with Ilias Khan, founder of Cambridge Quantum Computing. This is a technology that promises to transform everything from drug discovery to machine learning and cybersecurity, and it's fast becoming a reality. You'll be able to hear the very latest about the technology that could quite possibly change the world. Go to newscientist.com slash events to find out more about all our live online events. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the podcast that has more surprises than the atmosphere of Venus. (laughs) You're setting yourself a high bar there. Well, let's see how we do. I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm our podcast editor. And I'm Valerie Jemison. I'm creative director of New Scientist Events. This week, we're joined by New Scientist reporters Leah Crane and Adam Vaughan. Hi, guys. Leah is joining us from Chicago. It's a different time zone, but we're able to say hello to her back through time through the magic of editing. Hey, Leah. Hello, everybody. On this week's show, we have a special report on coronavirus as it reaches the grim milestone of one million deaths worldwide. We're also looking at how the brain can be manipulated into perceiving the passing of time at different speeds. And we meet a goat with cloned testicles. What? <laughs> yeah, I did, I did say there were lots of surprises on this show. <laughs> and there's this. I do truly believe that together we can create a better future. I might not be here to see it, but if we make the right decisions at this critical moment, we can safeguard our planet's ecosystems, its extraordinary biodiversity, and all its inhabitants. What happens next is up to every one of us. That, of course, was the soothing voice of David Attenborough talking there about the extinction crisis. We will examine what the latest figures on biodiversity tell us about the state of the world. But first, this week we saw the news of the possible detection on Venus of phosphine. Woohoo! Molecules! Yeah, it, it was very exciting. Phosphine is a molecule that on Earth is only made by bacteria or in industrial processes. So to find it on Venus, or specifically in the clouds on Venus, was really intriguing because it might mean there's bacteria there making it in the clouds of Venus. Or it might mean there's just some weird unknown chemistry going on there. I spoke with our space reporter, Leah Crane, all about it. And the first thing I asked her was, how did you react when you first heard the news? I think my immediate reaction was extreme scepticism because (laughs) we do hear we found a new thing and it may be a sign of life fairly often. And so far, every single time it has turned out to be almost certainly not a sign of life. But the more I looked at the work and spoke to the authors, the more I became a little bit optimistic that they have in fact ruled out a lot of ways to explain this that aren't life. Yeah, so they've made the measurement of phosphine but obviously, we, we definitely need to reconfirm that. And can we do that from Earth, or are we going to have to go there? So confirming the phosphine measurement is something that the team is actually already working on doing from Earth. 
And in addition to those Earth-based efforts with telescopes, the spacecraft Bepi Colombo is right now on its way to Mercury. And to get there, it has to fly past Venus a couple of times. So it's going to make some measurements of Venus next month when it flies by. Yeah, I, I love this. This is the sort of kind of amazing mid-mission repurposing that space agencies tend to hate doing. But I love it when it happens. So what, because it's flying out there in a stack of, of instruments, isn't it? So what is it, what, how are they going to measure it and what, what might they be able to do? So they had already planned on turning on a couple of their instruments as they went past Venus just to make sure that they're working to take some observations. So in this case, it's sort of serendipitous. They Mm. can take those observations that they were already planning on taking, including pictures and some observations of Venus's light that are similar to the observations that made us believe that there is phosphine there. And... They were already planning on taking those, so they can just take their same measurements, send them back, and maybe we'll see phosphine. The extra great part is that Bepi Colombo is actually going to fly past Venus again before it gets to Mercury. So if we don't spot anything in those measurements, they can then recalibrate and try again. Wow, that's excellent. And that's just going to happen next month? Yeah, it's going to happen in October. Um, So there is already one spacecraft at Venus right now, and that's from the Japanese Space Agency. Um, But that's got no way of detecting phosphine. But, you know, in the light of this discovery or this potential discovery of of phosphine, there's been a lot of talk about other missions that are, you know, on the drawing board to go to Venus. Um, Do you think we're going to see a a pivot to Venus now? And suddenly people are going, well, let's go there and let's let's get these funded. I do think that this is part of a really strong argument that we need to explore Venus more. I mean, it's sort of criminally underexplored given how close it is just because we've been really focused on Mars and also because Venus is very hard to explore. But I do think that this is maybe going to speed up a pivot that was already sort of starting to happen given all these missions that were already in planning. Yeah, so there's uh, there's a couple on the drawing board at NASA. There's one at the European Space Agency. Um, but the the next one really that's going to be there soonest uh, apart from Bepi Colombo, is uh, is an Indian space agency one, isn't it? Well, actually, the soonest one is a potential mission from Rocket Lab, which is a small space startup that's actually already working with some members of the team that found Phosphine to maybe try to figure out a deal with where that really small mission could help confirm these findings. And that's planned for 2023 to launch. Right. So that's very soon. Okay, apart from, you know, more measurements of phosphine or looking for phosphine, what else might that be able to look for, the Rocket Lab one? I'm not sure. And in fact, the team isn't really sure yet because (laughs) this discovery was just announced. So they've only just started working on thinking about what that mission might be. Okay, let's get a bit more speculative now and (laughs) talk about the possible ways that life might exist in the clouds of Venus. Uh, Because, you know, Although this result is a bit of a surprise, lots of people like Sarah Seeger at MIT have been thinking in in quite a lot of detail about how life might exist there, haven't they? Yeah, I think there have been some people who have been evangelizing for the idea that the clouds of Venus might be habitable for decades. The idea that I really like, this is Sarah Seeger's idea that uh, there's bacteria that live in the atmosphere and then they sort of turn themselves into inert sea like spores uh, that fall to the ground they can survive the conditions on the on the ground on venus 
uh, and then they get kind of whooshed back up into the atmosphere and the, and the cycle carries on like that and the reason i like that is that's that we see that on earth with bacteria in the atmosphere that are able to seed rain and snow and you know some people have there's this lovely phrase that rain is airborne bacteria's way of getting to the ground so you know there's a nice sort of life cycle there speculated out for us yeah i think that anything alive that we happen to find in the clouds of venus is gonna be absolutely wild and that's one of the reasons why it'll be so hard to confirm it because it's not necessarily going to be something that we recognize as being similar to earth life at all and so that's you know one of the more similar options is that it's a bacteria that falls to the ground and then is uh, lofted back up but those bacteria wouldn't necessarily look like earth bacteria because those clouds are full of acid and (laughs) most earth bacteria would not be happy in that environment right So they've managed to work out some way of bacteria surviving in droplets in the clouds on Venus, because um, we should say that uh, the clouds themselves are quite temperate. Water can exist, you know, in in droplets, whereas on the ground, on the surface of Venus, it's hot enough to melt lead. So, yeah, it's certainly going to be a different kind, but it's not out of the question that um, something could survive in these droplets. So, look, you know, you said at the beginning you were extremely sceptical. What's your hunch now? Are you willing to speculate? Are you going to put your cards on the table here? I do think that just logically, chances are that what's happening is some sort of chemical interaction that we just don't know about yet. Because, <laughs> yeah, it's sad, but, you know, you have to be realistic. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, deep down in my heart, I, I would like it to be something alive. And I'm excited about the prospect that it could be, even though I think that it is perhaps more likely that actually just something else is going on on Venus that we don't quite understand. Amazing stuff. I can't wait for that Bepi Colombo flyby next month. We'll obviously be all over this as the story continues. That's our sci-fi alert. As you know, this is when we've got something in the magazine that's already been in science fiction. This week we've got something that intuitively makes sense. It's the idea that our perception of time changes according to the state the brain is in. Yeah, there's a way of actually seeing this or experiencing this for yourself. Say you listen to music with a fast tempo like Aphex Twin or some crazy dance music, and then you listen straight after something a bit slower, it will sound like the slower thing is even slower than it is. Aphex Twin is, is a bit of a favourite of the podcast, isn't it, Rowan? Uh, yeah, he is. We we, uh, we featured Aphex Twin's music on uh, episode 15, so it's definitely worth checking that one out again. So now scientists at Osaka University in Japan have taken advantage of this trick to determine if there's a neural basis for the subjective sense of time. Now, this has long been suspected because people with damage to a part of the brain called the supramarginal gyrus, or SMG, often have an impaired sense of time. Now, basically what the scientists did is to scan the brains of people while showing them images that did the same as the fast music, slow music thing. And they manipulated the brain into perceiving time in different ways. Yeah, and the subjective reports from the people in that trial show that they did indeed feel time passing more slowly or more quickly, depending on how they'd been manipulated. 
I like what you did there, Rowan. <laughs> I should say that this manipulation soon wears off. It's not like you're forever trapped in a slow-moving no. world, which in, in 2020, thank goodness. Yeah. Um, the scientists in the trial also found that the SMG, the time-sensitive region of the brain, changed its activity as it got tired. Do you know, this reminds me of a story that we did a while back that reported on another incredible experiment where students were asked to stare at a tiny model of their communal lounge, complete with furniture and miniature figurines, just like a little doll's house. Yeah. And the students were asked to put themselves in the little people's shoes, relaxing on the tiny chairs with minuscule cups of coffee. Then they had to say when they felt 30 minutes had passed. And the really weird thing is that their estimates fell well short of clock time. Yeah, that this is a really intriguing. It was that imagining themselves small had made the students underestimate the time, the amount of time that had actually passed. And even more weirdly, the acceleration in that in that felt time was proportional to the scale of the models that they were immersed in. So the smaller the models, the faster they felt time had passed. It's just a, it's a really fascinating experiment, yeah. isn't it? I wonder who made the models for, yeah. for this and who came up with this idea. Okay, so Ron, that we know um, from Einstein that um, space and time are inextricably um, intertwined in the universe. So does this mean that space and time are, are folded together in the brain in the same way? Uh, absolutely no idea about that. Um, you know, <laughs> Einstein said that, yeah, you know, he said time doesn't flow and that the flow of time was a stubbornly persistent illusion. It's also hard to show there's such a thing as now, the now. So God knows. Yeah, <laughs> basically, <laughs> we're going to be opening a whole can of worms going into that. So let's not let's not get to the bottom of this um, now, but let's move on to the sci-fi link. Uh, well, predictably, I had to go with Doctor Who for this. Of uh, course. Yeah, I mean, the Doctor is... The Doctor looks human, but uh, she or he is a species of alien who can perceive time directly. And one episode in particular that uh, I thought would be apt here is called Heaven Sent. Uh, it was written by Stephen Moffat. He did a lot of the really good timey-wimey episodes. Um, and in this episode, the Doctor, he's a man at this point, or a male of the species, he buys himself time to work out something by vastly speeding up his thinking time relative to clock time. Uh, so he's he's only got a second before disaster strikes, but he's got he manages to create a load of time in his head to do some really clever thinking. Time out. We want to remind you there's a special offer available to you as a listener to our podcast. You can get twenty percent off a subscription to New Scientist magazine using the code POD twenty. Go to newscientist.com to subscribe and enter the discount code POD twenty at checkout and you'll get access to a whole range of stuff available to subscribers. And it's been great to see so many people signing up with this code. Yeah, there's lots of premium content there, videos, features, interviews, and an amazing archive of work going back years. And don't forget that special online event too, or reporting a pandemic. Pod 20 at checkout on newscientist.com gets you your bargain. Now to coronavirus. The first death from the virus happened on the 9th of January in Wuhan, China. And this week we're approaching 1 million recorded deaths from COVID-19 and 30 million recorded cases worldwide. And the true number is bound to be far higher and we won't know it for many years to come, if at all, as many people killed by the virus were never tested. Adam, you've been looking into how the crisis has unfolded. 
So to recap, there was that first reported death in China, which you mentioned, and then cases quite quickly appeared in Thailand, Japan, South Korea. We had to wait until February for the first fatality outside of China. That was on the 2nd of February in the Philippines. And then come 11th of March, the World Health Organization declared a pandemic. And it is now truly global, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, that's what I found. You know, I was just checking through the statistics which WHO and Johns Hopkins have been tracking. And, you know, it's just really interesting seeing how it really has gone everywhere. You know, it really is all around the world. It's only a handful of countries um, that have had zero deaths. So play, island states, places like St. Lucia and the Seychelles, and, you know, secretive ones where you probably don't trust the numbers, like Eritrea. And in terms of the worst hit countries, if you without adjusting for population size, the worst hit country by far is the United States with more than 196,000 deaths. And that's followed by Brazil, India, Mexico and the UK. It's the speed of this. It's the way the world has changed so quickly. It's just staggering, isn't it? You say in your piece in the magazine this week that every day for the past few weeks, 5,000 to 6,000 people have died from an illness that nobody had even heard of a year ago. Is there an end in sight yet? Yeah, that five to six thousand figure I found really sobering. It's just a good reminder, I think, that it's not you know, not gone not gone away, even if it might feel like that in in, in Europe to an extent. Um, I mean, those those numbers have been fairly stable uh, for the past month or so, but obviously researchers were keen to point out to me there's no guarantee it will stay that way. Uh, Jennifer Dowd at the University of Oxford, she said. It's still a wildfire that you want to extinguish. Most of the world is still susceptible, so there's plenty of kindling. I think it's going to vary like a wildfire would over time and space. So where is the next real danger spot, the place most at risk in the world? Globally, India is probably the one to watch. It's now um, got the second highest number of cases after the US. And what we're seeing is that although the, the number of deaths is a relatively small proportion of the cases, the death toll is rising. It's now more than 80,000. Yeah, I saw this week that um, the world's largest vaccine manufacturer that's based in India, the Serum Institute of India, said that production capacity of of vaccine isn't rising quickly enough, meaning there will not be sufficient doses of the vaccine to vaccinate everyone until the end of 2024 at the earliest. Yeah, that's a good point, Rowan. I mean, I, I think for me, it's just a reminder really for us all that, you know, even if one of those phase three trials of the vaccines is successful... And obviously, we saw the recent hiccup with, you know, the Oxford one, which is now back on. Um, and even if it gets approved by regulators, that, that really is, you know, only the start of the journey. You still have to, at that point, scale up manufacturing, distribution, and actually, you know, healthcare systems get the vaccinations done. The other thing that's funny, when you see um, how vaccines are manufactured, even at scale, and you just see loads of chicken's eggs, you just think it's so sort of basic, it's so uh, sort of old-fashioned and I wondered if the newer types of vaccine so you know RNA or DNA vaccines people say they can be produced at a greater scale than conventional vaccines but they're still in development themselves and they've never actually been made at, at great scale so you know that's right I mean the other thing to bear in mind there is you know one of the, with the RNA based ones is, is one of the sort of potential drawbacks is they have to be stored at really low temperatures and we're talking like levels of refrigeration that just don't exist in some poorer countries. So that's, you know, who knows whether that'll be an issue. Maybe that's just, you know, surmountable, but that's something else to bear in mind. Yeah, that's uh, the cold chain uh, storage problem in India is a a massive problem for food waste as well and for vaccine distribution. Exactly. Exactly. 
Another thing we've seen change is how at first we heard about how the virus was particularly dangerous to those with underlying health conditions. Now we're just not hearing about that so much. What's happening? Thank God we're not hearing it so much. It felt like every single time someone got yeah. death was reported at the start, you, had, you know, you only cared if they had underlying health conditions. Yeah. Um, none of it's just them over there, not us. Um, so yeah, it's become clear that COVID-19 really isn't just killing those likely to die soon. Dow told me that, you know, on average... Um, yeah, those people who died had a lot of life expectancy left. Um, some of the estimates uh, for the average person dying of COVID is that they had 11 years or more left. Um, you know, it's, the figures are different for men and women, but... That's shocking, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there is a, it, it definitely, you know, I, even on, you know, Twitter, I saw, you know, just while we were recording, we were recording this podcast, you know, my story on went on, for the magazine on this went out and someone wrote back to say, oh, you know, it was just people who are going to die anyway. Died, and that's just not true. Um, it is true that chronic health conditions do increase the risk of death from COVID-19, though. Uh, diabetes and severe asthma are among them. There's more in the US. You know, the statistics uh, from the Centers for Disease Control show that uh, 94% of people who died from COVID-19 did have some sort of underlying health condition or comorbidity uh, of an average of 2.6 per person. And age is a risk factor, isn't it? Age is the big one. Age is the big one that is consistent all over the place. So that's that's one thing that geography seems to have nothing to do with. And we go into that in the magazine. Uh, so the one sh- statistic that really struck with me, and I I did a straw poll with people to guess where how, how high they thought this percentage was. And they said, oh, 60, 70%. 90% of people who died were 65 and over. And that's 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 figures for Europe. But there's the similar evidence from other parts of the world. But, you know, while the immediate deaths are the focus today, we've also experts were reminding me that the pandemic's effect on mortality is going to be long lasting and we won't start to see some of that come out in the wash for the next couple of years. And then, you know, that that might be about long COVID. It might be about things like missed, you know, TB vaccinations, you name it. Yeah, we go into that in the mag this week. Uh, also in the magazine, we've got this extraordinary story of a lab that's been warning about pandemic preparedness for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been particularly warning for several years about a protein that viruses have been using to infect human cells, and it turned out to be the same protein that was eventually found on SARS-CoV-2, uh, which causes COVID-19, of course. So guess where this uh, this lab is based, everyone? Uh, nope, I um, don't know. It's Wuhan in China. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, it's an amazing story by the legendary disease journalist Deborah McKenzie in this week's magazine. Now it's time for Life Form of the Week. It's our celebration of newsworthy organisms. Rowan, tell us what it is this week. This week it's uh, actually just a plain old normal animal. It's a goat. Uh, Well, from the outside, it looks like a regular farmyard goat, but it's a very special one as it has cloned testicles. So when it has sex, it will father the offspring of another male. Yes, the idea here is to speed up the breeding process. At the moment, when biologists and farmers want to breed animals with a particular characteristic, like um, big horns, they find the hot stud, the prize stallion, or the best male for whatever trait they want, and basically mate him with as many females as they can. But there are only so many females a male can mate with, so to speed that up, biologists at the Roslin Institute in Edinburgh and uh, it was there where the first the world's first mammal was cloned Dolly the sheep biologists there have effectively cloned the testicles of a prize male and put them into other animals 
Yes, well, it's a bit more complicated than that, isn't it? It's not that they've grown testes in the lab no. and then transplanted them onto another male, is it? No, that's right. Um, you know, first the scientists made host animals that are unable to produce their own sperm. So they did that with CRISPR gene editing uh, to disable a gene. What, just one gene makes them unable to make sperm? Yeah, that gave me a bit of a kind of shock as well, really. It's a precarious knife edge, isn't it, that, yeah. that men rest on? Yeah. Just one gene can turn on and off sperm production. Uh, so they disable this gene and then they add sperm-producing stem cells from another male to this host male who can't make sperm. Then when the host male grows up and becomes sexually mature, he starts making the sperm of that donor male. Oh, it just seems so so tragic that this goat is obliviously making some other male's offspring. Yeah, poor sucker. He's a, you know, he's like a sperm version of a cuckoo raising the offspring of, a, but in that case, another species. Uh, the team have done this in pigs, goats, and mice, and are working on it in bulls. Uh, and three host mice have produced 111 offspring by normal mating so far. Oh, this is all starting to sound a bit Brave New World. Yeah, it is a bit. Uh, that's without even mentioning humans yet. Uh, you can see how you could start to breed animals far more effectively because you could modify the genome of a, a bull or a cow and make it carry certain desirable traits. Like you might be able to make a cow that burps out less methane so is less of a terrible problem to the climate. Or you could make some animals with disease resistance. They could be more tolerant to heat or they could produce even more milk or um, be even meatier. Yeah, so the idea, you get your, your modified animal, your super animal, and you get the sperm stem cells and then you put them in a load of host animals and you then you just make them as normal and you get a sort of army of uh, super cattle, super animals. Now, should we have a bit of Attenborough again? Yes, Hell please. Yeah. All right, let's have a bit of Sir David. I do truly believe that together we can create a better future. I might not be here to see it, but if we make the right decisions at this critical moment, we can safeguard our planet's ecosystems, its extraordinary biodiversity, and all its inhabitants. What happens next is up to every one of us. Now, we're playing that. Not just because it's always nice to hear his voice, and thanks to the BBC for letting us use that clip. Uh, we're playing that because this week we've had some stark reminders, if we need them, of the shocking state of the world. Yes, so it was that David Attenborough show on BBC One called Extinction the Facts, which uh, not only features his lovely voice, but him rolling around on the ground with gorillas. <laughs> Oh, and if you're not in the UK, it will no doubt be available to watch soon on your international BBC channel. And there was also that report from WWF, the 2020 Living Planet Report. That was quite shocking if you stop and look at the numbers that, that show that global populations of mammals, birds, amphibians, reptiles and fish have fallen an average of 68% globally since 1970 and that the decrease is faster than previously predicted. Then we had a United Nations report that showed only six of the Aichi targets for 2020 have been partially achieved. Yeah, it was a really, it really was a bio, biodiversity collapse week, wasn't it? Adam, tell us about these Aichi targets. So these are 20 targets that government set back in 2010 in Nagoya in Japan. And the idea was to stem the fact that we're basically in a sort of six extinction, the massive loss in biodiversity we've been seeing. 
So these were things like, you know, 17% of land and 10% of ocean should be protected areas by 2020. We've met that one partially, but we failed completely on 14 of the targets, such as eliminating subsidies that are driving biodiversity loss or halving the rate at which natural natural habitats are being lost. And it's just worth, I think, stressing, you know, there's 20 targets, none of them have been, you know, completely met. None of them have been met. But why have we failed so badly on this? Why have we missed these targets? So I guess this was interesting talking to the, you know, Convention on Biological Diversity and some conservationists, you know, they were really just reminding me that, you know, countries have done some good stuff, but they fundamentally failed to address the structural problems that are driving nature's destruction. So that's, you know, just the economic growth that causes forests to be converted to farmland or to new cities. Um, and if you look at the sort of different indicators you know, on policies supporting biodiversity protection, they're positive, you know, so the signs of governments are trying to do stuff. But all the indicators on the sort of drivers of loss, so, you know, the big one is land use change where, you know, the forest get changed into a, into a cattle ranch or something else. Um, and all the indicators on the current state of biodiversity itself, they are all basically flashing red. Yeah, and some of those declines are absolutely shocking. Looking at that WWF report in South America, Central America and the Caribbean, the average size of the decline of monitored wildlife populations was 94%. So an absolute crash. And the report also shows that three quarters of the ice-free land on Earth has been significantly changed by human activity and more than 85% of the area of our wetlands has been lost. These numbers are shocking. And, you know, what really gets me is the fact that this has all happened so quickly, you know, just, you know, even within sort of our lifetimes or a little bit beyond our life, our own lifetimes here. Yeah, it's the same with um, the amount of CO2 that's been put into the atmosphere, actually. It reminds me of that, that the amount that's gone in since um, the Kyoto Protocol is, is something like half of all of the CO2 that's gone in since the Industrial Revolution. So, yeah, we've, we've just been accelerating destruction. Um, there are some positive things that uh, we, uh, we do have to highlight these because, uh, you know, you've got to cling on to something. In the six years to 2014, the tiger population of Nepal rose by 64% and loggerhead turtles increased by 154% in a protected area between 1973 and 2009. So we can turn it around. But conservationists really are up against it, aren't they? They are, but I mean, I think it's important, you know, not to be fatalistic about this, you know, because we can sort of at least say that in the last 10 years, you know, the situation would have been even worse without some of the efforts we have seen. Um, so, for example, you know, the number of bird and mammal extinctions, it's estimated, would have been up to four times higher without action we've seen since 2010. Yeah, there are some little bright spots in the, you know, 20 targets, um, you know, and they include like actually work on stopping invasive species has uh, been has made some progress. The growth in protected areas of land and ocean didn't fully meet the targets, but it has again made some progress and financing for biodiversity projects has doubled, but it's still a drop in the ocean compared to say subsidies for farming. Um, and and just, just remember, you know, important to remember conservationists can only do so much. The next convention on biological diversity is going to be in Kunming in China in May. Um, this is going to be really crucial, isn't it? We're going to have to have real political action here. You know, Adam, do you think there's hope of leadership from China? I saw that statement this week saying that China was considering a new target for climate neutrality. 
But what do you what do you think of the hope of, of leadership from them? Well, I think, you know, China has real sort of self, you know, self-interest in this agenda, right? In sort of restoring some of its own degraded environment that's come at the expense of its development. Also, you know, there's a bit of back and forth between the UK leading the climate summit next year and China leading the biodiversity one. So there's going to be a bit of uh, scratching of backs, I imagine. And, <laughs> and uh, you, you know, you mentioned, you know, as well, there was that statement uh, on from a foreign ministry spokesperson for China. Um, it was, you know, a bit vague and non-committal in that way that stuff from the Chinese mm. government is, but. But nonetheless, you know, they don't say things loosely, usually, the Chinese government. Basically, what they were floating was the idea they were considering a net zero target, carbon target for 2050. And for a country, you know, with emissions the size of China, the biggest emissions in the world, uh, that's a big deal. We'll just have to wait and see if it becomes a reality. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us, Adam and Leah, and thanks to you for listening. Remember, as a podcast listener, you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist by using the code POD20 at checkout. Do get in touch. We love hearing from you and we'd love you to spread the word about our show. So do urge your friends and family to check us out and subscribe. We're on Twitter at New Scientist Pod and you can email us at podcast at newscientist.com. But until next time, take care. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.